Chapter Fourteen of Ride Proud Rebel by Andre Norton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Hell in Tennessee. At least we have that river between us now, Drew said. Behind them was Columbia, where Forrest had bought them precious hours of traveling time with his truce to discuss a prisoner exchange. Along the banks of the now turbulent Duck River, not a bridge or boat remained to aid their pursuers. Buford scouts had had a hand in that precaution. Yeah, and Forrest waiting for the Yankees to try and smoke him out. It's about like putting your hand in a rattler's den to get him by the tail, I'd say. But I'd feel a mite safer was there an ocean between us. Funny, a man is all randy with his tail up when he's doing the chasing. But you get mighty dry-mouthed and spooky when the cards is sliding the other way across the table. Seems like we've been chased back and forth over these here rivers so much they ought to know us by now, and be a little bit more obliging and do some parting, like in that old Bible story. Let us through on dry land. Man, how I could do with some dry land? Kirby spoke with unusual fervor. Croft laughed. No use hoping for that. Anyways, we have business ahead. Just as they had rounded up wagons to transport the infantry between skirmishes, so now they were on the hunt for oxen to move the guns. The bogs, miscalled roads on their maps, demanded more animal power than the worn-out horses and mules of the army could supply. Oxen had to be impressed from the surrounding farms for use in moving the wagons and field pieces relay fashion, with those teams sometimes struggling belly deep. Having pulled one section to a point ahead, they were driven back to bring up the rear of the train. Not enough ice on the ground, and it's raining now. Kirby's shoulders were hunched, his head forward between them, as if tortoise-wise he wanted to withdraw into a non-existent protecting shell. Just be glad, Drew answered, he ain't walkin'. I saw an ox fall back there a ways. Before it was hardly dead, the men were at it, ripping off the hide to cover their feet, bleeding feet. Oh, I'm not complaining, the Texan said. My boots still cover me, anyway. Me, I'm thankful for what I got. Can even sing about it. His soft, clear baritone caroled out. And now I'm heading southward. My heart is full of woe. I'm going back to Georgia to find my Uncle Joe. You may talk about your Beauregard and sing a General Lee, but the gallant hood of Texas played hell in Tennessee. Some sardonic Texan, anonymous in the defeated forces, had first chanted those words to the swinging march of his western command. The Yellow Rose of Texas, and they had passed from company to company, squad to squad, by men who had always been a little distrustful of Hood, men who had looked back to the leadership of General Johnston, as a good time when they actually seemed to be getting somewhere with this endless-seeming war. There was a soft echo from somewhere, played hell in Tennessee. Sure did, Webb commented, but this country coming up now ain't gonna favor the blue bellies none. He was right. Both sides of the turnpike over which the broken army dragged its way south, were heavily wooded, and the roads threaded through a bewildering maze of narrow valleys, gorges, and ravines. 
just a type of territory made for defensive ambushes to rock reckless Yankees out of their saddles. The turnpike was to be left for use of the rear guard of fighting men, while the wagon trains and straggling masses of the disorganized army of the Tennessee split up to follow the dirt roads toward Bainbridge and the Tennessee River. Know something? Webb demanded suddenly hours later, as they were on their way back with their hard-found quota of oxen and protesting owners and drivers. This here is Christmas Eve. Tomorrow's Christmas. Ain't had a chance to count up the days till now. Sounds like we is going to have us a present from the Yankees. Hear that, amigos? Kirby rose in his stirrups, facing into the wind. They could hear it right enough, the sharp spatter of rifle and musket fire, the deeper sound of field guns. It was a clamor they had listened to only too often lately, but it was forceful enough to suggest that this was more than just a skirmish. Having seen their oxen into the hands of the Teamsters, they settled down to the best pace they could get from their mounts. But before they reached the scene of action, they caught the worst of the news from the wounded men drifting back. Saw him carried off myself, a thin man with a bandaged arm thrust into the front of his jacket told them. The Yankees got across Richland Creek and flanked us. General Buford got it then. Drew leaned from his saddle to demand the most important answer. How bad? Abram Buford might not have had the dash of Morgan, the electric personality of Forrest, but no one could serve in his headquarters company without being well aware of the steadfast determination, the regard for his men, the bulldog courage which made him Forrest's dependable, rock-hard supporter in the most dangerous action. They said pretty bad. General Chalmers, he took command. Christmas present, Kirby repeated bleakly. Looks like Christmas ain't gonna be so merry this year. They had lost Buford, and they were forced back again, disputing savagely, hand to hand, revolver against saber, carbine against carbine, to Pulaski. Seven miles, and the enemy made to pay dearly for every foot of that distance. It was Christmas morning, and Drew chewed on a crust of corn pone, old and rock hard. He wondered dully if his capacity to hold more than a few crumbs had completely vanished, and he allowed himself for one or two long moments to remember Christmas at Oak Hill, where he had managed to spend a more festive day than at Red Springs, in the chilly neighborhood of his grandfather. Christmas at Oak Hill, Sheldon, Boyd, Cousin Mary, Cousin Jeff, too, before he died in 59. Drew opened his eyes and saw a fire, not the flames of brandy flickering above a plum pudding, or the quiet, welcoming fire on a hearth, but rather a violent burst of yellow and red destruction punctured by bursts of exploding ammunition. These were the stores Forrest had ordered destroyed, because the men could transport them no further. The word was out that they were going to make a firm stand near Anthony's Hill, again to the south, and they had been hard at work there to fashion a stopper, which would either suck the venturesome enemy into a bad mauling, as Forrest hoped, or else just hold him to buy more time. There the turnpike descended sharply with a defile between two ridges, ridges 
which now housed Morton's battery, ready to blast road and hollow below. Felled timber, rails, stones, anything which could shelter a man from lead and steel long enough for him to shoot his share back had been woven together, and a mounted reserve waited behind to prevent flanking. A good stout trap, the kind Forrest had used to advantage before, and which had enough teeth in it to crush the unwary. Dilly, dilly, come and be killed. Drew repeated to himself that tag from some childhood rhyme or story as he waited at the mouth of the gorge to play his own part in the action to come. A small force of mounted men, scouts, and volunteers from various commands were bait. It was their job to make a short, stiff resistance, then fly in headlong retreat, enticing the Union riders into the waiting ambush. "'Who's this here Dilly?' Kirby wanted to know. "'Some Yankee?' Drew laughed. "'Might be.' He sagged a little in the saddle. Sleep during the past ten days had come in small snatches. Twice he had caught naps, lying in stalled wagons, waiting for fresh teams to arrive. And both times he had been awakened out of dreams he did not care to remember. To ride with gummy eyelids and a sense of being so tired that there was fog between him and most of the world. It was two days now since Buford had been wounded. The news was that the big Kentucky general would recover. It was a whole twenty-four hours since he watched the Christmas fires Forrest had lit in Pulaski, the fires which had devoured what they no longer had the animal power to save. Here in the mouth of the gorge, the silence was almost oppressive. He heard a smothered cough from one of the waiting men, a horse below in a kind of wheeze. Then came the call of a bugle from down the road. There's not ours, Drew thought. Hannibal shook his head vigorously, as if bitten by a sadly out-of-season fly. The captain, commanding their company of bait, signaled an advance, and they followed the familiar pattern of weaving in and out of cover to enlarge the appearance of their force. Firing rent the quiet of a few minutes earlier. Drew snapped a shot at the Yankee guide-on-bearer, certain he saw the man flinch. Then, with the rest, he sent Hannibal, on the best run the mule could hold, back into the waiting mouth of the hollow. They pounded on, eager to present such a picture of wholesale rout that the Union men would believe a soft strike. Perhaps an important bag of prisoners lay ahead, needing only to be scooped in. Perhaps it was the reputation for wiliness Forrest had earned which put the Yankee commander on his guard. There was no headlong chase down the ambush valley as they had hoped, and planned to intercept. Instead, dismounted men came at a careful, suspicious pace, cored around a single field piece, a small answer to their trap. But when that blue stream funneled into the hollow, the jaws snapped away canister from Morton's guns laid a sigh along the Union advance, cutting men to ground level. The yell shrieked along the slopes, and men jumped trees and rail barricades, pouring down in an assault wave not to be turned aside. The Yankee gun, its eight-horse team, men who stood now with their hands high, horses for riders who were no longer to need them, three hundred of those horses from the lines behind the dismounted skirmishers, 
far more valuable than any innate treasure to men who had lost mounts, one hundred and fifty prisoners. Kirby rode back from the eddy in the road, his mouth a wide grin, splitting his skin and bone face. He had a length of heavy blue cloth across the saddle before him, and was smoothing it lovingly with one chill-blained hand. "'Got me one of them there overcoats,' he announced. "'Sure fine. like to thank General Wilson for it personal, if I could get me in roping distance of him to do that.' The small success of the venture was not a complete victory. His dismounted cavalry overrun or thrust back, Wilson brought up infantry and they settled down to a dogged attack on the entrenched Confederates on the ridges. Union forces bored in steadily, slamming the weight of regiments against the flanks of the defenders, and slowly but inexorably that turning movement pushed the Confederates in and back. Drew, riding courier, brought up to the ridge where Forrest sat on the big gray king, Philip, statue still, immovable. General, sir, the enemy is in our rear. Forrest turned his head abruptly, the statue coming to life. And there was impatience in the answer, which was certainly meant for all the doubters at large and not to one sergeant of scouts relaying a message. Well, ain't we in theirs? General Armstrong, his men out of ammunition, made his own plea to fall back. But the orders were to hold. Hood was at Sugar Creek with the army. He must have time to cross. It was late afternoon when Forrest at last ordered the withdrawal, and they made it in an orderly fashion. Through the night the rear guard toiled on, and a little after midnight they reached the Sugar in their turn. Drew splashed cold water on his face, not only to keep awake, but to rinse off the mud and grime of days of riding and fighting. He could not remember when, he had had his clothes off, had bathed or worn a clean shirt. Now he smeared the jacket sleeve across his face in place of a towel, and tramped wearily back to the fire where his own small squad had settled in for what rest they could get. Croft was sniffing the air, hound fashion. "'Ain't going to do you no good,' Webb told him sourly. "'There ain't nothing in the pot, nor no pot either.' Les Kirby remembered to stow it last time. Lordy, my back and my middle are clean, growed together, seems like. Feast your eyes, man. Just feast your eyes. Kirby unrolled his prized coat. In its folds was a greasy package, which he did indeed give up as a treasure. A good four-inch thick slab of bacon squeezed in with a block of odd brownish-yellow stuff. They crowded around, dazzled by the sight of bacon, real bacon. Then Drew pointed at the accompanying block. What's that? New kind of hardtack? Nope. That's theirs vegetables. Kirby spoke with authority. Vegetables? Yeah. These here Yankee commissaries been working out new tricks all the time. They takes a lot of stuff like turnips, carrots, beets, all such truck and press it into cakes like this. Of course, you have to be careful. I heard tell as how one bluebelly, he chawed the stuff dry and then drank water. It bloated him up like a cow in green cane. Poor fella, 
He just naturally suffered from being so greedy. But you drop it in water and give it a boil. Looks like hay, Drew commented without enthusiasm. He picked it up and sniffed dubiously. Man, Webb said, if Yankees can eat hay, then we can too. And I'm hungry enough now to chaw grass. Were you to show me a tidy patch and say go to it? How come you know all about this hay stuff, Anse? We found some of it on the Mazeppa. The lieutenant told us how it worked. The Mazeppa. Webb breathed reverently. And there was a moment of silence as they all recalled the richness of that capture. We sure could do with another boat like that one. Too bad this here creek ain't big enough to float a nice bunch of supplies in right now. Kirby produced the pail dedicated to the preparation of coffee. But since coffee was so far in the past that they could not even remember its smell or taste, no one protested his putting the vegetable block to the test by setting it boiling in the sacred container. Don't look like much. Webb fanned away smoke to peer into the pail. Kirby had also produced a skillet made from half a Yankee canteen into which he was slicing the bacon. It's filling, he retorted sharply. And you didn't pay for it, did you? A man who slangs the cook and the grub now maybe he ain't gonna find his plate waitin' when it's time to eat. Webb drew back hurriedly. I ain't sayin' nothin', nothin' at all. Drew grinned. That's being wise, Will. Time when a man can talk himself right out of a good piece of luck. It's hot and fillin', and you got bacon to give it some taste. With hot food under their belts, a fire, and no sign of orders to move, they were content. Kirby and Croft followed the old plains trick of raking aside the fire, leaving a patch of warmed earth on which all four could curl up together, two men sharing blankets. As the Texan squirmed into place beside him, Drew felt the added warmth of the plundered coat Kirby pulled over them. This had not been too bad a day after all, or rather yesterday had not. It was now not too far before dawn. They had made their play at Anthony's Hill, and had come out of it with horses, some food, and a few incidental comforts like this coat. Now, after eating, they had a chance to sleep. It seemed that Forrest was going to pull it off neatly again. Drowsily, Drew watched the rekindled fire. They would make it, after all. He awoke to find the thick white cotton of fog enfolding the bivouac. The preparations they had made again of rail and tree breastworks to greet the Union advance were no easier to see than the men crouched in their shadows. It would be a blind battle if Wilson's pursuit caught up before this cleared. One would only be able to tell the enemy by his position. But there was no hanging back on the part of the Yankees that morning. Slowly, maybe blindly, but with determination, they were picking their way ahead reaching the creek bank. If they could cut through Forrest's present lines, thrust straight ahead, they could smash the demoralized straggle of Hood's main command, and the Army of the Tennessee would cease to exist. The bluecoats were shadows in the fog, the first advance wading the creek now, their rifles held high. And as that line closed up and solidified into a wall of men, a burst of flame met them face on. It was brutal, almost one-sided. The Yankees were on their feet, 
pacing into a country they could not clearly distinguish, while their opponents had picked trees and were firing from shelter with accuracy to tear huge gaps in that line. Men stopped, fired, then broke, running back to the creek for the safety which might lie beyond that wash of icy water. As they went, ranks of the defenders rose and raced after them, hooting and calling, as if on some holiday hunt. Now the cavalry moved in in their turn, cutting savagely at the Union flanks, herding the dismounted Yankees back through their lines of their horse-holders, as Morgan's men had been driven at Cynthiana. Wild with fright, horses lunged, reared, tore free from men, and raced in and out, many to be caught by the greycoats. It was a rout, and they pushed the Union troops back, snapping up prisoners, horses' equipment, whipping out like a thrown net to sweep back, laden with spoils. These attackers were the rear guard of a badly beaten army, but they did not act that way. They rode, fought, and outmaneuvered their enemies as if they were the fresh advance of a superior invading force. And the swift hard blows they aimed brought not only time for those they defended, but also the respect, the irritated concern of the men they turned time and time again to fight against. Having pushed Wilson's troopers well back, the Confederates withdrew once more to the creek, waiting for what might be a second assault. They ate if they were lucky enough to have rations, and rested their horses. Corn was long gone, so mounts were fed on withered leaves pulled from field shocks, from any possible forage a man could find. Drew led the gaunt rack of bones that was Hannibal to the creek, letting the mule lip the water. But it was plain the animal was failing. Drew shifted his saddle from that bony back to one of the horses they had gathered in during the morning. But the Yankee gelding was little improvement. In the mud, constantly cut by ice, too wet most of the time, a horse's hoof rotted on its feet. And the dead animals, many of them put out of their misery by their riders, marked with patches of black, brown, gray, the path of the army. A man had to harden himself to that suffering, just as he had to harden himself to all the other miseries of war. War was boredom, and it was also quick, exciting action, such as they had had that morning. It was fighting gunboats along the river. It was the heat and horror of that slope at Harrisburg the cold and horror of Franklin. It was riding with men such as Anson Kirby, being a part of a fluid weapon forged and used well by a commander such as Bedford Forrest. It was a way of life. The scout's hand paused in his currying of Hannibal as that idea struck him for the first time. Now he thought he could understand why Red Springs and all it stood for was so removed and meaningless. It was lost in the dim past. To Drew Rennie, now, the squad, his round of duties, the army, these were home, not a brick house set in the midst of green fields and smooth paddocks. The house was empty of what he had found elsewhere, acceptance of Drew Rennie as a person in his own right, friendship, an occupation which answered the restlessness which had ridden him into rebellion. He stood staring at nothing 
as he thought about all that. Kirby startled him out of his self-absorption. But your saddle, amigo, we're hitting the trail again. As he swung up on the Yankee horse and took Hannibal's lead halter, Drew asked a question. Ever seem to you, Anse, like the Army's home, like it's always been, and you've always been part of it? Kirby shot him a quick glance. Guess we all kind of feel that sometimes. Get so you can hardly remember how it was for you joined up. Me, I sometimes wonder if I just dream Texas out of my head. Only I keep reminding myself that someday I can go back and see if it's just the way I dreamed it. Kind of nice to think about that. They cut away from the main line of march, ranging out and ahead. Stragglers from the army must be moved forward, directed. And they came upon one of those, a tall man, limping on feet covered with strips of filthy rag. But he still had his musket, and on its bayonet was stuck a goodly portion of ham. He had been sitting on a tree trunk, but at the approach of the scouts he moved to meet them. Howdy, fellas, he spoke in a hoarse whisper, wiping a running nose on his sleeve. What command you in? Forest's cavalry, scouts. Forest's? He took another eager step forward. Now there's a command. Ain't been for you boys, the bluebellies would have gulped us right up. Nary one of us got out of Tennessee. You ain't rightly out yet, amigo, Kirby pointed out. Kind of lost, ain't you? The man shrugged and grinned wryly. Feet ain't too good, but I'm making it fast as I can. Can you fork a mule? Drew asked. This one is for riding. We'll take you to one of the wagons. Now that's right kind of you boys, right kind. The man hobbled up to Hannibal as if he feared they might withdraw their offer. Say, you hungry? Get us where we can light a spell, and I'll divide my rations with you. He waved the musket with its impaled ham. Maybe we'll do just that, Kirby promised. Drew dismounted to give the straggler a leg up on Hannibal before they headed on toward the Tennessee and the promise of a breathing space. End of chapter 14